Hey, Kev, let's let's follow this trail over here. This looks like there might be something waiting down there. All right. Hey, wait a minute. Do you hear that? Yeah, I thought it was just me. What the heck is that? I don't know what that is. Whoa, do you smell that, too? That's unbelievable. Hey, look. What the? Hey, look, those, those branches are moving over there. What the heck is that? Holy cow, is that what I think it is? Look at that thing. It, oh my god. It's a freaking Sasquatch. Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I am your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everybody out there, and may I welcome you all once again to what is going to be a gangbuster podcast. My name is W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods, Sightings and Encounters, that will scare the bejeebers out of you. All of my books are available at Amazon, volumes one through eight, in paperback and ebook. And if you like the Audible route, you can go to Audible, iTunes, and Amazon for volumes one through seven. Yes, that's right. Seven is out now, so if you're wondering where it was, you could buy it tonight. And now, may I introduce you to my brother and co-host, KJ Sheehan. Kevin, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about you, Bill? I am marvelous, marvelous. I'm looking forward to this. I'm chomping at the bit. (laughs) You know, I got to tell you, though, like I told you, I think in the last podcast where it was unseasonably warm and the sun finally came out and the land started to dry and I started (laughs) to put the cover over my ark that I was building. Well, the skies opened again. (laughs) And today it was 34 degrees and pouring rain. Uh, I went outside to the mailbox and it said, and I was like, feels colder than that. And I looked at my my uh, weather app and it said, feels like 31. Perfect. Oh, yeah. not perfect. <laughs> well, you know, you can't fight it, though. I mean, uh, March is that kind of transitional month. You know, we had a few warm days. We're going to have some more warm days uh, next week and in between we're fighting a little chill and I just stepped out of my deck before to smoke a cigarette and I had uh, sleet pellets falling down on the oh, deck. Yeah. Yeah. So it is what it is. It doesn't bother Bigfoot and it doesn't <laughs> bother me. <laughs> but you are spot on with the March description. My neighbor reminded me that when I was out in the road talking to him, complaining. He said, come on, man, you knew you were getting it when you looked at the calendar and it said March. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just cool at this point in time with everybody having in- endured what we've been going through. Uh, we got spring training in Florida. Uh, we've got some NBA playoffs coming up. Uh, we've got March the, Madness, college yeah, basketball playoff. March Madness. We've got the NFL uh, draft, right? So things things are, are clicking, you know, if you're a sports freak. And uh, it, it, there's light. There's light, man, at the and end of the And here in tunnel. the U.S., most importantly, I mean, all those things are super cool, but here in the U.S., we got the vaccine coming on pretty strong. Yeah, no, that's excellent. And uh, they got it into Walgreens down the street from my house, Bill. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just waiting for the Thank for the go. call. Getting waiting for the invite. I'll be in there, you know, first in line, slapping on my arm like some kind of junkie. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to all you junkies out there. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to put you down. Yeah, come on, man, boot me up. <laughs> I guess that would be bad if I went in there and said that, huh? <laughs> Probably raise a couple of brows. Ooh, especially in my neighborhood. Uh, They'd yeah, be like, yeah. are you that Bigfoot guy? <laughs> Why, yes, I am. 
<laughs> so what do you got up your uh, sleeve tonight, bro? Oh, yeah, we're uh, we're going to go out to uh, our one of our favorite regions out in the Pacific Northwest. And we're going to be looking at some unidentified flying objects. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to start out back in 1947. One of the most famous, perhaps the most famous UFO sightings, Bill. Yeah, I know where you're going. I know you know this one. Well, I know the guy. I, I know a bit about it. You're talking about Kenneth Arnold? Kenneth Arnold. I knew yep. you knew this one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 No, you know, really, Kev, this is where it all began. Yeah, that's where the terminology came, came about, right? Flying saucer. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So this is back in 1947. A private pilot, Kenneth Arnold, as my brother correctly identified, uh, he said that he saw, he reported seeing nine, quote-unquote, saucer-like aircraft flying in formation. Yeah, that's incredible, man. Incredible. And they were flying between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams in Washington. And it's interesting, this guy's quite an accomplished pilot, and he reported back then that he estimated the objects were traveling about 1,200 miles per hour. Well, think about that in 1947. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, what was the fastest plane back then? Maybe the P-51 could do 450 or something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think in 47, I don't think we had uh, anything that got close to breaking the speed of sound, you know. Yeah. Nah, nah. But I mean, the the uh, the um, Germans had the Messerschmitt 262, that twin jet engine that they broke out in like 1944-45. Right. In limited quantities, you know, and the P-50, even the P-51 pilots were like, what the heck was that? You and what was it, that? That was capable of like five or six hundred, right? Yeah, I'd say five hundred miles an hour. Yeah. Which you know. at which at the time, if you were in the air, something going by at five hundred miles an hour was no, like, and and the jet engines, like the guys, you know, they didn't know anything about that, right? You know, yeah, they were thinking supercharged, maybe supercharged with water injection was like very sexy, and then this thing flies by with no propellers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And those two six twos, man. You got to give it to the Germans. They had some creepy-looking aircraft. Like, even their camouflage was super creepy. Yeah, well, you know what? And what was that thing running on? Like, kerosene and gasoline? Yeah, jet fuel, right? It's like, jet fuel is basically kerosene. Yeah. High-test kerosene. Yeah, unbelievable, man. So let's get back to Arnold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was on June 24th. So Arnold was flying from Chehalis, Washington, to Yakima, Washington. On a business trip, okay? And it's interesting, he made a brief detour because he heard about a $5,000 reward, uh, which, you know, you go back in time, and that's equivalent to about 60 grand, 60 large today. Wow. um, To look for a U.S. Marine Corps transport airplane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. Uh, they knew it had crashed? Or we yeah, don't... so they knew it had crashed, and they were offering this reward. Wow. Yeah, super cool. I guess they had, lo- obviously, the Marines must have looked for it, and they didn't find it. Well, yeah, they were looking for it, I'm sure, nonstop. But then they put out a reward and said, hey, all you private pilots out there, or anybody else, I guess, let us know if you know where this is, and we'll give you $5,000, Yeah, that was worth a look if you were in the air, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he went around and he says that it was a completely clear day and there was a mild wind, which I guess is not much wind. I never heard wind described as mild. but Yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. odd. Now, yeah. what, his plane was like, well, in 47, I'm not sure what it would be. You know what it reminded me of? A little low-wing bonanza or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, you know, they say uh, that it's a call air A2. I never heard of that, though. So I'm a little skeptical that that's actually the name. I didn't get a chance to Google that name. Uh-huh. But have you ever heard of that, Bill? No, but it was it. It was an odd looking little thing. It, it just, is an odd looking plane. Yeah. yeah, it it wouldn't make it wouldn't surprise me if that was the name of a probably some early aircraft company that 
didn't quite make it later on, you know. The Studebaker of aircraft. Exactly. You know, like a lot of car manufacturers, they knocked a couple off and just said, ah, you, we can't survive, you know. No, oh, could, could certainly be. Wow. So he's flying along, right? He's taking a little detour near Mount Rainier. And, you know, folks out there, like I lived in Washington for a while. My son was born in Washington State. Uh, Mount Rainier, that's in the U.S. here. That's what you see on the state of Washington license plate. Like that image on the license plate, that's Mount Rainier. Right, so right. It's kind of an old volcano, like most of the big mountains out there. It's a monster of a mountain. It's it beautiful. It is a monster of a mountain. When you're flying along, like I used to fly from Spokane, Washington, to Seattle on a weekly basis back then. And when you're flying along, it's always cloudy out there. And you'd be flying along over the clouds. You'd look out the left side if you were flying west, and you'd see this Big mountains sticking up over the clouds, <laughs> and that was Mount Rainier. Wow, that's freaking yeah, imposing, super man. Cool. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So he's whipping along apparently around three o'clock in the afternoon at about 10,000 feet in altitude, and uh, he gives up his search, right? He detours for a while, probably as fuel would allow, to look for these, uh, this marine C 47. And uh, he turns east towards Yakima, Washington, and all of a sudden he sees a bright flashing light, kind of like sunlight reflecting on a piece of shiny metal. Okay. Right? So he gets nervous as a good pilot, thinking like all of a sudden he's close to another airplane, and that's the flash he's seeing, right? Right. Right. And he scans the sky around him, and uh, all he can see out in the distance is a DC-4 that's just out to the left and behind him, right? So, and, uh, and, and it's about 15 miles away, so pretty far away. And then about 30 seconds later, he's still looking around. 30 seconds later, after seeing the first flash of uh, light, uh, he sees a series of bright flashes off to his left. And they're just north of Mount Rainier, okay? So about 25 miles away. Okay. And he's like, oh, maybe these are just reflections uh, off of uh, his airplane or off of another airplane's window. So he's rocking his plane, pretty smart, right? Removing his eyeglasses, later opening up a little side window on his plane to like rule out any reflections that could be playing games. Right, off the and canopy he, or the glass or something. Whatever, right? Like, he's it's a smart guy, right? I might not have taken the time to do all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, he still sees these, these things that look like reflections, but they're flying objects, and they're flying along in a long line. Can and he's thinking, like, maybe it's birds. Uh-huh. Right? And um, and they're bright, and they're going very fast. And then he's like, maybe this is like a new kind of jet that he doesn't know about. Hmm. Right? Well, better a jet than giant aluminum birds. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and he says they quickly approached Mount Rainier. Then they passed in front of it. And, uh, um, you know, just looking like this... Uh, dark profile against the snow-covered Mount Rainier, which, by the way, Mount Rainier is almost always snow-covered, you know, regardless of the time of year, uh -huh. and still giving off these bright light flashes as they flipped around in the sky. Yeah, that was weird in his description, too. Like, he said they were, like, tumbling or flipping around. Exactly. But yet he was able to get a description of them. Uh, which I, I'm sure you'll probably give, you know, he described uh, a detailed uh, anatomy or shape of the craft. Yeah, well, of course, the most famous description he gave was he said they were like saucers, right? So that's where we get the term flying saucer, discs, pie pans, or half moon. And he says generally convex and thin, and, uh, you know, just pretty strange looking. Like he's getting a very solid look at them for a good period of time and has no idea what they are. And he's a very well accomplished aviator. Yeah. And again, it's broad daylight, three o'clock, crystal clear. And as I said earlier, a mild wind. Yeah. 
Very interesting, you know. Yeah. Now, wasn't there? Uh, you may be talking, going to talk about this, but we can open it up. Yeah. Uh, that DC four that he saw. Now I know after the fact, there was another commercial pilot who had seen similar objects. I don't know if it was that same day or a different day, and he had met up with Arnold to concur about what either of them had seen. Uh, He was in a commercial craft, and he and Arnold agreed emphatically about what the two of them had seen. You're exactly right. Um, I couldn't find the exact account, like with the person's name and what they were flying, but you're exactly right. You know, I remembered it that way. And then when I came across it on the research, I saw references to it, but not the exact details like I found here yeah. uh, for Mr. Arnold. Yeah, but you're I th- right, Bill. I thought also that I had heard Arnold speak about this somewhere. At, my memory wants to say that Arnold gave the description of the craft, these various shapes and discs, and it had like a almost like a fin shape on the back. And But I thought it was the newspaper writing about what he had come forward with that used the headline Flying Saucers. No, exactly. They they came up with the uh, the tagline, but he did describe it as a saucer. Wow. He didn't call it a flying saucer. Right, right, right. Right. He said it was like a saucer or a disc or a pie pan. Wow. Yeah. Freaking incredible, man. I mean, picture this guy flying along at 11,000 feet. He had to have had the shakes or some kind of crazy adrenaline rush. You know, wondering, like, what the heck am I looking what at? What am I looking at? Yeah, and it catches his eye at first, which, you know, we, we see that, Bill, whether you're looking in the sky or you're looking into the ocean. You know, something catches your eye, and, you you know, it draws your focus. You look over there, and then you're like, what the heck is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, and then you rub your eyes, you know, you... Take off your sunglasses, you roll down your window like he's doing. Whatever it is, you make the adjustments, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, it's still there. Whoa, it's crystal clear. Yeah. Like, what the heck? You know, you keep adjusting and trying to account for what kind of error am I looking at? Like, how am I misinterpreting what I'm looking at? Yeah, you can't it, you, you can't believe it, right? Of course, you know, but you you kind of logically go through, as I describe it to my friends, the built-in self-test. You know, yeah. high tech term for like a computer, but you go through the built-in self-test, you check everything, and you still see it, and you're like, hmm, okay, I guess it's really there. Now, what the heck is that? Yeah, you know, and as a side note, nothing to do with sources. There are a lot of people out there who after contacting or having a contact with a Bigfoot, wish it never happened. Hmm. There's a lot of people out there. Especially after they talk to their friends, right? Like, get not their friends, but they talk to people about it and then get ridiculed for it, too. Well, that and just a lot of them seem to have, like, uh, nightmares. Hmm. They can't shake it from their mind. It's it's like a disturbing thing to them after having mm-hmm. had the contact, you know, like they just wish they could take an eraser and forget about it, you know. Mm. Kind of haunts them a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, like yeah. they say, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. So, Arnold, man, what a freaking crazy thing. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. And then we're going to transition here. It's same area, same point in time. Uh, to one of the most famous reports of a UFO, Bill. Same. This is in McMinnville, Oregon, hmm. in 1950. So three years later. Right. And I know you've seen this one too. So it's uh, McMinn- McMinnville is southwest of Portland and north of Salem, Oregon. So kind of, as we used to say in the northwest, not in the middle of nowhere, but five minutes from there. But at about 7.30 p.m. on May 11th, uh, a couple, uh, farmers Evelyn and Paul Trent, spotted a disc-like object hovering in the sky. 
And, um, you know, Paul ran back into the house to grab his camera, of course, his old-fashioned camera. And these photos were eventually uh, reprinted in Life magazine and newspapers across the nation. Yeah, incredible pictures that guy got. No, I know. I know. Like, they are absolutely incredible. And, of course, you know, there are folks that say these are a hoax, just like when, you know, somebody comes back in the broad daylight of seeing a— Bigfoot standing in front of them with 12 of their friends, and folks say, yeah, it was probably a bear. Yeah, yeah, you know. You're probably wrong. And again, you have to say to yourself, probably the most famous picture that I've seen many times from that fella is the one where he caught the telephone lines and the pole. Yes. With the uh, craft kind of like angling a little bit. Yeah, it's on like a 30-degree angle, angled to the right. Yeah, with the house and the oil tank. Yeah, outside the house next to it. Yeah, I'll you know, post that. I'll post these pictures on our uh, website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com. Yeah, and of course, you know, way back then he was probably using some old Brownie Instamatic or some. Oh yeah, cheap. And they're black and white, of course. Right. You know. But they're cool looking pictures. Freaking phenomenal pictures. Yeah, and uh, of course. Uh, Naysayers were trying to figure out. Ah, uh, he, he stood a pole up out in the property and hung this two pie tins from it, uh, strung it up on the telephone lines. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, it's all nonsense. Why don't you just wake up that the guy took a picture of a freaking UFO? Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, of course, I, I always go back to a lot of these historic sightings of whatever we're talking about in cryptids and the news and other oddities, just because it was so hard to get the news out there back then. And people really had very little to gain. You know, it wasn't about the number of hits on YouTube and whether they could get the top advertising because of the number of hits that they got. Like, there was no real motivator of these two, you know, this this couple of farmers from, again, not the middle of nowhere in Oregon, but five minutes from there mm. uh, to go out and create a hoax like this. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's just nonsense. These people were simple, simple folk. Exactly. And I'm not saying simple like stupid. They were just, you know, living their lives. Yeah, they're farmers. Yeah, you know, doing what they had to do, living off the land. You Getting know, by. You know, and as a side note, uh, I had heard uh, a guy, someone in the know a couple of days ago that said there was more to the TikTok or Tic Tac video and what happened around that thing than we were shown. Well, so it's funny you mention that, because I have that here in my notes. I was going there next, believe it or not. It's unbelievable, Kevin. So, you know, to our audience, again, my brother and I are 600 miles apart every time we record these, and we intentionally don't tell one another what we're going to talk about, you know, because we think it's more interesting. But uh, what, what brought me to this was I was watching an old episode of Expedition X, One of my favorite shows on Discovery, right? Mm -hmm. And they were talking about UFO sightings near Mount Adams, which is right out there near Mount Rainier. Now, Adams Adams was one of the peaks. uh, He was uh, Arnold was between Rainier and Adams, wasn't he? He was right there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same same exact area there, right? Right. And uh, and and they he they start to talk about on the show about the Tic Tac incident. And they were saying that the government um, is also saying that they didn't release all of the documents and videos associated with the Tic Tac incident. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this might not have been on the show. I may have read about it on Discovery dot dot com, this particular incident. But it was interesting to think about how what the heck was too scary for them to release to the public when you have these fighter pilots talking to one another for minutes in the Tic Tac video saying, what the heck is that? Hey, look, hey, look, man, there's like a whole bunch of them. Yeah. You know, look what's going on in the water. Like, you know, what exactly did they see that they couldn't release? 
Right. Like me personally, I wanted to see what was going on underwater. Oh, yeah, yeah. They say, like, it, it went down to the surface of the water, it was all disturbed, the surface of the water, and then the UFO disappeared. Yeah, into the water. Into the Well, I was thinking Godzilla came up and <laughs> yeah. Godzilla was actually flying a drone. No, he didn't go after <laughs> this thing. It was one of his drones. I mean, you know, I'm just saying, I'm a Godzilla fan. <laughs> Don't go telling me Godzilla's not real, okay? It's not a bear. <laughs> Godzilla is not a bear. So um, so on Expedition X, I'm going to go a little bit further. They had this guy on there on this episode. It was from season one, so from last year. His name is Dan Nims. And they said he's a former F-22 test pilot. And now, believe it or not, he works for MUFON. Yeah. The UFO guys. And he went out there with them on this episode with some pretty cool equipment that scans the horizon and can, and has some serious software in it that can tell, like, what identify what crafts are. And they tested it in a snowstorm by flying a drone around it. And the thing quickly picked up not only on the craft, even though it was snowing like crazy, but it immediately identified it as a drone. Yeah, a, a, a MIMS... I don't know if Mims helped design it, or he he must have been a contributor. I mean, I don't know, all right? I yeah. don't know. I don't want to say one way or the other. Yeah. But that freaking thing that they have is like an AI device, artificial oh, yeah. intelligence. Yeah, definitely got AI in it. Yeah, so it's it's capable of identifying a host of things flying. Oh, yeah. And then... Coming to a conclusion after identifying it or trying to, if it's unidentifiable. Yep. So that is a freaking incredible. Uh, uh, super cool. And yeah. uh, by the way, on this episode, which is one of my favorites so far of Expedition X, they actually see some stuff. They record it and then they go back and check on this equipment like two days later and it sees it, too. Yeah. And says it's unidentified. So Dan leaves us with some test questions, which is what I want to leave the audience with. Okay. And he says, now he's an aviator, right? Like, you know, serious aviator flying F-22 test pilot. And he says, you know, the test questions are three of them. Does it fly like an airplane? Is it lit like an airplane? And does it make any noise? And in most of these cases, you know, they don't fly like an airplane that we know of. Right. It's not lit like an airplane. You know, it doesn't have a green light on the starboard side and a red light on the port side and maybe a red flasher and a white strobe. And you typically don't hear any noise either. Yeah. No, no so noise. I thought that was cool. I've never heard that before, like those three simple questions. Right. It's a, it's a critical, analytical series of scientific questions that yeah. need to be answered in the identification process. That's it. That's it. From what we know about flight as human beings, if it doesn't do those three things, now, okay, you could, if it could fly like an aircraft and be lit like an aircraft and be some type of uh, uh, hang glider, right? Sure. If it was being used at night and make no noise. Yep. But it it has to be within the context of those three things somewhere to have a shot at being a known aircraft as we know it. Yeah, I mean, definitely a good test. So, you know, so we go all the way back there in 1947. And then, you know, we talked about the Tic Tac video a bit, although we've done a full episode on it. You know, all the way up in 2004 when that occurred off of the Nimitz in the Pacific. That is some bizarre stuff, man. Yeah. And, you know, it's always, if you're new to our podcast, folks, uh, we inadvertently uh, overlap subject matter as time goes on because all of this stuff, whether we're talking about cryptids or UFOs or paranormal activities, all of this data just kind of overlaps and rolls together over time. And it bears repeating and it bears discussion again and again and again 
to kind of connect the dots as to how we came to where we are currently. Right. And uh, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners are like me. I can't get enough of this stuff. I just keep kicking it around, and I'll talk to anybody about this subject uh, matter who's willing to talk with me, you know. I no, find- I, and Bill, by the way, I can't believe how much stuff there is. Like, I really try to look, and I think our audience sees it based on our reviews, with a critical eye. I try to, you know, I I sort through the uh, chafe to come up with the wheat, so to speak, you know, yeah. oh, no. uh, yeah. for us to talk on. And we're on our 91st episode. And, uh, you know, there's some good, good different kinds of events out there that people see that are well-reported on and well-documented going back hundreds of years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Super incredible. Super cool. It's, yeah. uh, uh, this, this subject matter is no fluke. No. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous to me to think that, you know, everybody's an imbecile and everybody's imagining something other than what they're telling you they saw. You know, no doubt I, about it. I don't I don't buy into that. I don't buy into that at all. All right. Well, I'm ready to buy in. What do you got for us this week, Bill? Well, I'll tell you something. This simple yet telling encounter was told to me by John and Barbara Schmall. The two of them are residents of Pennsylvania. And you're not going to believe what they had to say. My wife and I had purchased a house that was listed at the time as for sale by owner in the western Pennsylvania area. It was an all-cash deal with a fast closing. When we went to look at the house, the couple who were living there had a beat-up little shack in the backyard. The main house was so nice that I couldn't believe they had this piece of garbage building in their backyard. It was painted barn red and looked like it had been repaired ten times over with chewing gum and Band-Aids. So he's just describing this thing. It's just this ramshackle little building of sorts. It was, however, being actively used by them as a hen house. The access door on the end of the house looked like it was hanging on by a thread. It was held shut by a piece of clothesline that was nailed to the wood on one end and wrapped around a boat cleat on the other. Along the one long side of this shack, the upper half of the exterior sheathing had been removed exposing the stud wall in the house. This was covered now in chicken wire that had been stapled in place. The bottom side of this same wall had a hole cut in it for the hens to go in and out. And along the outside edge of the pens, uh, along the outside edge was a pen made of pressure-treated 4x4 lumber and chicken wire. It was the most ramshackle junk box setup I had ever seen. Two weeks before we had closed the deal, the couple, the current owners, asked my wife and I if we wanted them to leave the chickens for us, to which we replied, no thank you, and we left it at that. At the closing table in the attorney's office, we had asked them during some small talk how they made out with the removal of the chickens. John, the husband, said, Thank God we got rid of them at the last minute only yesterday afternoon. So, the following day, my wife and I were over at our new house painting the interior. My friend Lou was prepping the bathroom for a new tile job. Less than six days later, we had moved in. It was on the evening of April 26, 2015, 
three days after we had moved in that all hell broke loose. I remember the exact date because we had just celebrated my wife's first birthday in the new home on the 25th. During the last stages of twilight, after the sun had already set for the day, I stepped out of the back door onto the patio, having just come home from work. All of the following things that I'm about to say to you virtually happened at the same time. As I stepped out of the back door, my eyes were immediately drawn to the rope lock on the hen house I had just described to you. It was unraveled, leaving the door open on the now empty coop. As I was looking at this open door, I had pulled the door shut hard behind me on the house quite loudly, when without warning, a Bigfoot launched outward from inside of the coop. He jumped out in what I would call a Superman leap straight through the chicken wire, which was now wrapped around him as he landed on the ground. He was gigantic and came out flying out of this coop in full force, completely horizontal to the ground, landing on all fours maybe 25 feet away from the coop. With one swift movement, it stood to its feet, <coughs> excuse me, flinging both of its arms into the air, throwing the wire off its body. It turned and snarled at me, and then it literally launched itself into the woods behind our home in what was maybe three consecutive leaps. I wouldn't call them steps because the amount of ground it had covered in these three movements of its legs was insane. All of this had happened so quickly that I didn't even have time to think about what was unfolding before my very own eyes. Momentarily, it felt like my heart had stopped and I wasn't breathing. And if it had wanted to get me, I would have been dead meat for sure, but it seemed like I had surprised the monster and it just wanted to get the heck out of our yard. I have never in my life been that close to anything remotely as large as this thing was. It became immediately obvious to me that it was familiar with the smell and location of this house, which did, by the way, stink like chicken crap. And I was left wondering if it hadn't been there before. When he stood up in front of me, it looked like one giant cube of animal. It reminded me of the old Hulk TV show, when Bill What's-His-Name transformed into the monster. This Bigfoot was totally ripped up in every sense of the word, being just muscle upon muscle. He had the most evil-looking face that you could ever imagine. And when it growled at me, his upper lip somewhat receded as he showed me his teeth. As he did this, the facial skin kind of scrunched up, forming a large layer of wrinkles up to his eyes, which were completely black. I could see that the underlying skin was dark gray in color. Initially, I had thought that he was completely covered in hair, but he was not. He did have somewhat of what I will call a beard, and there was actually quite a bit of hair on his face, with the exception of the area on both sides of his nose. To me, his ears seemed too small for his head, and they were flushed to the side of the skull as well. My wife who works in a local hospital until 11 p.m., could not believe what I told her when she came home. Quite frankly, who could blame her? It was the craziest and most frightening event of my life to date, and I hope that I never have to endure it again. What do you think about that, Kevin? Whoa. K, 
Bigfoot you, leaping out of a chicken coop. Can you imagine coming out of your back door after a day's work and wham, bam, this thing explodes in front of you? I mean, I think I would have fell over. Fell over? Are you kidding me? I mean, I go. I think I'm going out there worried about running into a copperhead snake. <laughs> and then I run into, you know, the Hulk Holy covered smoke. in f- hair. I mean, like he said, everything happened so quick that you might as well consider it all happening as once. Yeah. He's yeah. like, he comes out, the door's open, like, what the heck, you know? But it had such a crappy... He, he described our thing as being, uh, what did he say, clothesline wrapped around a boat cleat? <laughs> I mean, not much of a latch, you no, know? No, but that's fair. You know, that's yeah, what you'd but, expect. I mean, anything could have opened it, right? I mean, right. so his first thing is the door's open. He closes the door behind him. He was probably going to go over and look at it. Sure. But before he could say boo, <coughs> this thing explodes through the chicken wire like in a Superman leap. Yeah, and parallel Norman, to the ground, right? Freaking incredible, man. Holy cow. And but he we said, do have to go to one point here. He says, Bill, what's his name that played the Hulk? Bill yeah. Bixby. Oh, there you go. So there you go. And what was his what was his other famous role, Bill, for trivia? Uh well, he was in uh uh, what's that show with the little boy? He played the father to that little boy. Courtship of Eddie's father. Yeah, you got Courtship it. of Eddie's got father. Yeah. I mean, that's like the non-animated version of Davy and Goliath. <laughs> yeah, but talk about the antithesis and roles. Oh, there's no comparison. Yeah. But I think of Courtship of Eddie's father and I think of Davy Goliath, one of my favorite shows, and it's like, Davy, the Lord <laughs> knows that Bigfoot's in the chicken coop. <laughs> That was good stuff, you know. <laughs> that was great stuff. Yeah, great yeah. stuff. I'm making myself cough thinking about yeah, well, Davy and Goliath. Davey. Well, we're, bo- we're both all dried up here in this winter heat. <laughs> uh, dry air, you know, and uh, that's just the way it is, you know. Yeah, it's all good. That well, That is awesome. So where was that account, Bill? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. There you Western, go. Western PA. Western PA. So and and that area actually many areas of Pennsylvania, but oh, Western it's a hot PA. Bed. It's a hot yeah, it There's a, a lot of Bigfooters looking around out there in the woods for and reporting sightings over there. No doubt about it. And uh, this one was in 2015, so we're talking six years ago, five six years ago. Yeah, you know? not that long ago. Uh, just incredible. Mm. Can you imagine? I mean, this is like going into a haunted house after you buy it, right? Oof. Everything's cool. You're doing a little repaint. Your buddy's helping you redo the tiles in the bathroom. You know, you're changing the faucet. Finally, you get your stuff moved in. You're kind of getting comfortable, you know, maybe having a barbecue. And and then you step out the back door and... A freaking dog man bites you in the butt. You'd think like that would be one of those points in the disclosure notice. You know, was anything <laughs> like a Bigfoot eating a few of your chickens every night? Like you should have to disclose that when you sell your house. So that when you clear out the chicken coop before you move in, you know that there's a good chance there's going to be an unhappy Bigfoot in the chicken coop. Yeah, well, sometime down the road. Uh, we're going to get into another uh, hen house issue with Bigfoot. Mm. Uh, I don't know when, but, you know, what goes around comes around when it comes to Bigfoot because they are definitely opportunists. Uh, they're definitely creatures of habit, as are many animals, uh, like a fox, right? The, yeah, the territorial, old story. too. Territorial beasts. Right. The old story of the fox in the hen house, right? Oh, yeah. People know it. Uh, they're almost. And that's real. That's real too, man. Like my friends with the game cameras around here that have chickens, they're always catching the fox going into their uh, chicken coop. Yeah, and they're cunning. Oh, he's sneaky. Yeah, yeah. like they're they put these pretty sophisticated latches on them, and the fox figure out how to open them. It's really unbelievable. Yeah. You know? 
So imagine what a big could, Bigfoot could do with hands and an opposing thumb. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it, it's easy, you know? And it's superhero really, strength. Yeah, ridiculous strength. Yeah. I mean, if they can't open it, they just go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried opening it, and I couldn't. Awesome. So that's it, my brother. That's a great account, Bill. Well, we got that's some awesome. great listener mail this week. Okay. And uh, this first one goes back in time, which I love because I, you know, we were talking about how many episodes we've done, and how they vary in topic. And this one goes back to one of the older episodes. It's from Michael from California, and the subject is Dark Watchers. Oh, remember the Dark Watchers? Yeah, those those were those things up on the hills in Southern California and whatnot, right? Yeah, yeah, in a specific place, easy for me to say, in Southern California for hundreds of years, going back to the Spaniards, first settling the area, they would report of these shadowy, tall creatures with big hats in the uh, hillside close by, usually right around dusk. Unbelievable. And that was... That was part of the description I remember now as you're saying it with the big hats on. Big hats, yeah. Jeez. Tall and with these big hats. And so Michael writes in and he says, Hey, WJ and KJ, love the show. This is Michael out here in California, mm-hmm. one of your many dedicated listeners. I remember the show you did on the Dark Watchers, and it was great. I ran across this other this article the other day, and I wanted to send it your way. And he says, I like the supernatural explanation better. Keep up uh-huh. the great work and terrific modern and historic accounts. Awesome, so Mike. I read this article from LiveScience.com, and I expected to see, no offense, LiveScience.com, but I expected to see like a good, solid, logical explanation. Because, you know, Bill, I'm like the scientist skeptic. Here and um, and I was like, man, like I'm going with the supernatural. This isn't really a good explanation. This is like saying somebody really mistook a Bigfoot for a bear when it walked up in front of them four feet away in the broad daylight. Like, yeah, not happening. Yeah, not happening. Wow, it's incredible. Not happening. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're gonna thank you, Michael. We're gonna go from California across the Pacific back to. Fred in Okinawa, Japan. Huh. Yeah, and Fred wrote in a couple of weeks ago, and we read his article. And this one, he wrote in about the UFO accounts that I talked about in the UK a few episodes ago. And and I'm reading this because this is how it makes our podcast better. You know, Bill and I do the best we can, but Lord knows that's not, not good enough sometimes. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. I'm the best. <laughs> But Fred writes in and he says, hello from Okinawa, Japan. I love your podcast. On the last one, you described the SAS, the British SAS, Uh as like the Secret Service or NSA in the United States. And right when I was reading that, I was like, did I really say that? And yes, I did. But that's Uh wrong. And he points out they're actually one of Britain's special forces. And he writes, not me, okay, arguably better than the Navy SEALs or the Russian Spetsnats. I mean, they may be better than the Russian Spetsnats, but not better than the Navy SEALs. Yeah, go SEALs. That's my words. That's my words. (laughs) Hoorah. And then he says, they are a secretive group due to the types of missions they do. The joke they played on the Air Force sounds like something they would get a kick out of. <laughs> Keep the awesome podcast coming. Fred in Okinawa. So Fred's, uh, in his own mind anyway, buying into he thinks this was a spoof. Well, I mean, that was one of the theories. And it certainly could be, you know, the SAS playing some tricks on the U.S. because the U.S. was occupying their base. And, uh, you know, they they did some stuff. I forget what it was to tick off the British. So you never know. It could happen. I mean, it's a better explanation than a bear, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it's just really cool to have people chime in because it shows they're they're listening. 
and not just listening. They're listening intently. Like when I read his note, I was like, did I really say that? I'm like, I guess I did. But yeah, that's not correct. <laughs> I didn't mean it to come out that way. My mistake for sure. <laughs> Thank you. All right. And now we're going to Florida. All right. All right. To Rick. And Rick writes in with the subject proof of Sasquatch. Wow. And Rick, is this, ra- had is, this is this Ranger Rick from Flipper? <laughs> I was going to say, Rick, you had me at Sasquatch. <laughs> he writes, hello, gentlemen. And I use that term loosely with regards to WJ. Hey! <laughs> I was on one of my Facebook Bigfoot pages today, uh-huh. and someone had posted a photo of a bone pile and asked if anyone knew what might have created it. One member offhandedly posted... Google Mount St. Helens bone pile teeth. So I did. Holy cow. Uh If what I found is not proof, and I believe it is, it is the strongest evidence I have ever seen. I hope you look into this, Kev. This may just be the holy grail that finally gets you that autographed copy of Bigfoot Terry in the Woods you have long so coveted and you have been denied by your cheap and inconsiderate brother. (laughs) And he says, lots of laughs. Of course, I jest. You know he's never going to give you a free signed copy. Great show, fellas. I love it and listen to it religiously and have since 1972 have always carried way more gun and ammo than I think I'm going to need. There you go. And by the oh. way, I know I know who left the bone pile by Mount St. Helens. Yeah. It was it was it was me after eating a shopping cart full of spare ribs. <laughs> <laughs> so I did Google this. I don't know uh-huh. if you've uh, looked into this, Bill, but it's pretty interesting. I'm uh, I'm going to look into it on cryptids and the news and other oddities. It's, mm-hmm. it's on the list. Well, these bone piles. I, I personally have two accounts of them in my books, uh, and uh, there are others. There's definitely others, and the idea that. Piles of bones would be accumulated anywhere, especially out in the open forest. Uh, it's uh, no, really, and they have these square. They're big bones, and they have these square teeth-like marks in them. You know, not not porcupines, not bears, like more like human blocky teeth, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, gnawing on them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, that's that's weird. That's really Very weird. weird. And, uh, yeah, well, you know, we can believe whatever we want having to look at it, and we do. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I never concern myself with what the other people think because, frankly, yeah. I'm not interested. Yeah, no, it's cool. Uh, I'm not in this business to justify uh, my own uh, feelings and beliefs. I'm simply here to report, talk about it, and share it with our listeners. You sure. Know? And get some input. Like, we got some great input from the listeners, which is what we're doing right here. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to go to Brad. And Brad doesn't say where he's from, but uh, it's pretty interesting. He says, I know you did a podcast sometime back about the Dyatlov Pass in Russia. Uh But I just read a book named Dyatlov Pass based on a true story that haunted Russia. Very good read and some of the explanations on how those in the party were lost are explained anywhere from the government testing a new type of weapon to strange orbs, lights, UFOs. The site radioactivity on some of the bodies were attributed to the fact that they had explored old ore mines in the area. So I, I hadn't heard that before, but certainly the weapons testing, the Bigfoot, the strange orb lights which might be the weapons testing, too, I had had heard about. But I'll have to look for this book. Mm-hmm. And I love the whole Dyatlov Pass mystery. Yeah, it is it is a mystery, you know, and who doesn't like a mystery? Absolutely. You know, it's one of the most favorite genre of uh, books, mysteries, right, and movies. Yeah, we have two more letters, Bill, both about the land between the lakes. Okay. One that's very short, but I had to read it. This is from Clayton out there in Kentucky. All right. And he says, all I know 
is if I ever go there, I'm going to carry a lot more gun than I think I'm going to need. That's what I'm talking about. God bless the USA. Yeah. Go, Clayton. Go, Clayton. Had to read that. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) Short and to the point. Short and to the point. All right. And our next one is a geography lesson, which we need a geography lesson sometimes. From Lori from Kentucky. And she says the the subject is a land between the lakes location clarification. Wow. You ready, Bill? You got your pencil out? I guess so. I have to be ready. First. Are we being tested on this after the podcast? This might be on the test. All right. A little geography lesson about Kentucky. Uh The Appalachian Mountain region is the eastern third of the state. The middle, which is known as the bluegrass region, Mm -hmm. is gently rolling farmland, famous for horse farms, distilleries like Jack Daniels. Uh That's my input. And (laughs) cattle and crop production. Western regions may have some hills, but no mountains. The far west, where land between the lakes is located, is more flat as it nears the Mississippi-Ohio River confluence. The Appalachian Mountains are 300 miles from land between the lakes. Bill said northern Kentucky during the discussion. Northern Kentucky is clear across the river from Cincinnati. That's that area is 250 miles from land between the lakes. <laughs> and now the most important part. I listen to you 2 nuts weekly, and I love the stories Bill relates. I thank you. <laughs> so Lori, we definitely need some geography lessons. I can barely yeah. remember. I've been in North Carolina for 21 years. I can barely remember the Piedmont and the coast and the mountains. And now you want me to do math with fractions associated to the different geography inside of Kentucky. And then you want my brother to relate to it. Come on, <laughs> like he lives. He lives in the eastern. Uh, well, I should say the. The near easternmost <laughs> quartile of Long Island. <laughs> you know, I'm picturing Lori like as a teacher giving all of her students a freaking F. <laughs> <laughs> and telling you to go bang out the erasers outside yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Now go wash the blackboard and sit in that corner, you dunce. <laughs> Put the pointy hat on and assume the position. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, anyway, thank you, Lori. We do need we do need help with geography, and I love hearing uh, from you folks in the state uh, where we talk about some of these cryptids and uh, other oddities. So it's fantastic. Keep the keep the letters coming, and of course, keep those five star reviews coming. I took some time this week, Bill, and I read some of the written reviews. Oh, my goodness. We have fantastic listeners. So if you haven't left us a five-star review lately, please go and leave us one. It's the only way we have to attract new listeners to the podcast. And by getting new listeners, we can continuously increase the quality of the podcast. And even if you like the quality already, it helps us stay on the weekly schedule as well, which is challenging for Bill and I at times. So thank you so much. And thank you for those five-star reviews. That's awesome, man. And I'll tell you what, folks. You may find yourself one of these days out by Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, like Kenneth Arnold, snooping around in the sky for some extraterrestrial activity. And if you do, remember, there may be something else that's watching you. And if it is watching you, you better hope that you always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight. <laughs>